This is a conversation with Dr. Joshua Hendrick of Loyola University, Maryland, on Fethullah Gulen, the Gulen movement, and contemporary Turkey. Our conversation is going to look at what we call within the podcast neoliberal Islam, how the Gulen movement increasingly became intertwined with business, capitalism, and politics until eventually it became a threat to the Turkish state and resulted in the dramatic conflict of 2016 between Erdogan and Fethullah Gulen. I hope this conversation shines some light on a topic I find to be misunderstood and underreported. I would also highly recommend for interested listeners to look up Dr. Hendrick and his work on this subject. We'll be linking to his book in the show description. For more fascinating interviews on subjects that are unreported, underreported, misunderstood, or just need two smart people chatting, you can check out our back catalog. We have some fascinating interviews up about the recent protests in India, Hong Kong, and other global issues. You can go to our YouTube where we have great video interviews with guests from around Asia. And of course, you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com, where we build the programs that connect travelers to some of the most fascinating people in Asia. All right, here's our conversation with Dr. Joshua Hendrick on Fethullah Gulen, the Gulen movement, Turkey, and Islam. I hope you enjoy. Professor of Sociology and Global Studies at Loyola University of Maryland. Um, uh, very much consider myself in the my position is oriented towards a teacher scholar model. Um, I focus very um, conspicuously and intentionally on undergraduates. I'm at this university and a undergraduate focused liberal arts university for very particular reasons that um, I view my role as an educator to be targeted, you know, to be um, more pertinent toward the undergraduate experience uh, in terms of my teaching goals being cultivating critical thinking of the world in which we all live. Um, don't never really felt the need or desire to recreate myself in a, in a sort of a circle of PhD students uh, who would all become Turkophiles or um, or being focused on Muslim politics in one form or another. That's um, I was much more interested in uh, cultivating the general interest and critical interest in uh, uh, what doesn't make sense in the contemporary world system. Was it uh, an inkling you had from the start that uh, neoliberalism uh, and the sort of the weakening of the state was having a very strong impact on Islam? Or was this something that you discovered over the course of 
your research and gradually the thesis sort of came about organically? It started with uh, when I went to graduate school, I got my PhD at the University of California, Santa Cruz, in the Department of Sociology, working with a uh, now emeritus professor of sociology there who in the early 2000s had received a large grant to study the Islamist response to neoliberal restructuring in eight countries. Turkey was one of the countries. And serendipitously is when I had applied um, for uh, PhD studies to focus specifically on um, what at the time I had understood to be more and lack of a better way to phrase it now, moderate or non-confrontational, uh, non-violent articulations of Muslim politics. Um, and I had uh, knew I wanted to study in Turkey. This was right at the beginning of the Justice Development Party's um, emergence as what's now the dominant political player in that country. Um, and so there was a, a lot of stars that aligned for me to take advantage of a significant amount of resources that uh, my mentor had had to begin this project. And then I started going to Turkey regularly every summer for language and cultural immersion. And as I just started to learn more about the country, I started to ask more questions about other articulations of Muslim politics in that country that weren't necessarily the party. And I very quickly learned about Fatih Gulen and the Gulen movement. Um, and what I was most interested in at that time, what drew me to them was, was how um, the Gulen community's piety was articulated uh, inconspicuously um, and how the identity of the community was projected through non-religious institutions, specifically schools of one form or another, whether they were tutoring houses or, or uh, uh, primary, sec secondary, or university institutions. Um, and then also how, at that time, their other identity to that was through outreach, cultural, intercultural, interfaith dialogue outreach institutions. But their, their mode of Islam, their identity of Islam was, was um, uh, intentionally it seems being marketed as very um, almost uh, non-confrontational, palpable, uh, pal palatable, I should say, to, uh, to both a Turkish secular audience that, uh, although culturally Muslim, the political history of Turkey is, views uh, political manifestations of Islam as being somewhat threatening to the integrity of the secular state. And so this, this sort of modus operandi of the Gulen community being something that their Islam was downplayed, or at least the variation of Islam that was articulated by Fatih Gulen was something that was viewed as very non-threatening, both to secular Turks and then over time to uh, non-Muslim populations around the world. And I, I wasn't necessarily attracted to that. I was attracted by the fact that that was so attractive to some people. And I couldn't understand what exactly uh, was threatening about Islam. Uh, I understood the Turkish context and then, you know, the larger world context. Uh, I was um, disheartened post 9-11 at the simplicity with which non-Muslims viewed Islam. Uh, 
at least in popular media and among my social circles. And, uh, and I found it to be, you know, uh, almost a, uh, just a very uh, simplistic way to not only view Islam, but also to present Islam. And so I was wondering what, what really is behind this. Uh, and then as I started to get into the research on it and the literature on it, I realized there was not much written about Fethullah outside of Turkey. And what was available was um, very repetitive and um, seemingly very self-serving, uh, promotional of what the Gulen community is up to. And so uh, I had a lot of questions I needed answers and I couldn't, find, I couldn't find them anywhere in the academic literature on it. So I realized I had a dissertation topic. And that started then a 15-year. A big thing that I wondered now, because uh, Erdogan, at least outside to the West, really does come across a very dictatorial, um, and maybe you can confirm that or add nuance or however you've come to um, interpret his style of governmentality, we'd love to know more about. But after publishing your work or during that time in Turkey during this research, was it much more open? Or were you in this very strange sort of space where as a Western academic, you were allowed to explore questions that a Turkish one uh, would not? Could you talk a bit about the sort of the politics of publishing a work like this? And if there's anything that has changed radically for um, these kinds of works being banned or very difficult to do now? Sure. Um, I started going to Turkey looking into uh, issues in Muslim politics, process of democratization, etc. in 2002. Again, that was the rise of the Justice Development Party. The Justice Development Party came to power on a platform in its first term um, to clean up the corruption of the existing parties at that time. Uh, the 1990s were a significant uh, era of disarray in Turkey. Um, there was a series of weak governments that had collapsed one after the other, not as bad as the 1970s, but um, in many ways viewed as a quote-unquote lost decade among Turks. And there was a um, old Islamist movement that had um, been, you know, quite the player in partisan politics from the 1970s through the late 1990s, and then following a what Turks refer to as a postmodern coup in 1997, uh, that party was uh, removed from power, uh, and then it reformed into another party. That party, the Welfare Party, was banned from politics, and then it was reformed in 1999, and then that party was banned from politics. And then after that event, uh, in 2001, um, Erdogan was in prison and was banned from politics for life because as, as a mayor in 1994 of Istanbul, as part of this old Islamist party, he had read a traditional Turkish poem that was viewed as Islamist propaganda in the courts, and he was... Um, uh, imprisoned and then stripped of any capacity to participate in politics for the rest of his life. Well, when the Justice Development Party had reformed this Islamist movement, it was really the younger gen generation of this old, old 20th century brand of Islamism in Turkey, and the older generation formed a new party as well, and the younger generation led by 
under the table, sort of behind the scenes, led by Erdogan, who was in, in prison. Um, and then uh, Abdullah Gül, Bülent Arınç, uh, as well as a number of the other um, younger leaders uh, had started the Justice Development Party. And Abdullah Gül became its first prime minister when they won a single party majority in 2000, November 2002. Um, and he served as prime minister for several months until a deal was struck to reform Erdogan's uh, ban on politics and to allow him to be reinstated. And then once that happened, he became prime minister. And throughout then that first term, 03, 04, 05, uh, most of 06, um, the Justice Development Party branded itself as what it called, what its leaders called conservative Democrats. They um, uh, publicly, Erdogan and other leaders articulated the sanctity of secularism in the Turkish political governing structure. Um, they uh, reoriented the foreign policy objectives of the party toward European Union in, in, integration, which was a stark contrast to its uh, Islamist predecessor party in the 90s. Um, they had uh, mobilized a Another foreign, foreign policy objective that um, the architect of that, um, a fellow named Davutoglu, Ahmed Davutoglu, articulated zero problems with neighbors. This was Turkey's efforts to um, uh, pacify relations with Arab and Arab, Arab neighbors in Iran, uh, as well as with uh, lip service to uh, engaging with Armenia and with Cyprus. Um, which are, you know, historical um, roadblocks in Turkish uh, foreign policy objectives throughout most of the 20th century. So this was then uh, various ways in which fighting corruption and trying to clean up AK, another AK means white, but it also, the AKP, AK means white, it also means pure. And the sort of identity of the party was a sort of a, a shift from sort of traditional Islamism to more of a conser conservative moral authority type of politics that was uh, anchored upon objectives to continue to liberalize Turkey's export economy, continue to attract foreign investment. Uh, this attracted much of the sort of center-right um, liberalized elites of Turkey who were not as staunchly Kemalist, um, not as staunchly sec sec secular, and who had as much gripe about Turkey's non-democratic -dem tendencies, specifically at that time it had concern with the military's oversight over elected governance. Um, and so for a number of these reasons, long story short, the AKP was had managed, specifically in its first term and into its second term, to cobble together and hold together a coalition that was not uh, just composed of the conservative right wing, but instead was com composed of much of the center of the political spectrum. Um, and this was enough at that time, again, we're talking about 22 and then turn uh, 31 in the second term percent of the vote, but the way that the parliamentary system works there with the 10% threshold um, in a, in a election, you need to win 10% of the electorate to win any seats in parliament whatsoever, which means multiple parties could win less than 10%, which means one party, the AKP, can win 
20-something percent or low 30 percent and get 80 percent or more of the seats in Parliament, which is what they managed to do. And for the first two terms, they did manage to rule uh, with, a, with a significant eye toward this coalition they were holding together, uh, well aware that they, the party did not have an entrenched hold over the other institutions of the Turkish state, specifically the military, the judiciary, um, uh, as well as um, higher education, which is a very significant bureaucracy in Turkey, uh, centralized education system. Um, and so for this reason, uh, there was a very slow and patient effort on the part of the AKP to uh, facilitate the party's takeover of the state, which is really where the Gulen community played a very significant role as being sort of um, another wing of what I call in the book, drawing on Antonio Gramsci, the passive revolution, where you had one group of Islamists who were mobilizing through the halls of parliament, through partisan politics, and the other who was mobilizing through civil society and through unelected um, uh, sectors of the state. And in, very, in every which way, they, for the first two terms of the AKP's administration, and really into the third term as well, they worked as a, as a coalition uh, on the center right um, because they had so many um, overlapping goals. This was a very easy marriage. And because the Gulen community had long since watered down its Muslim identity, politically speaking, when the AKP did this politically, this was something that made an alliance with the party something that the community could spin as not an alliance with one political party, but an alliance with democratization and the forces of democratization, which is how this was spun in popular media, as well as to uh, the world community outside of Turkey. Erdogan, he can loop in and out of our story. He's not my central concern. Um, Gulen is my central concern, particularly as someone who considers themselves more on the left. When I was first reading about him and how he's talked in sort of younger U.S. leftist media is either very mysteriously or in sort of this gallows humor way where people, just like when they talk about China, don't really know what they're talking about. So you'll hear him sort of joked about um, maybe in media or sort of essays as sort of this mysterious shadowy um, figure who uh, has these networks of power that were integral to the 2016 coup, who um, was trying to create an ideology that uh, could infiltrate the state, infiltrate capitalism, and bring about something radically different, be it um, uh, Islamist, be it um, some new ideology not yet born. And so to read your book, it was very devastating how you describe uh, uh, Gulen, where it, it this this term market Islam is a really devastating term of basically he's he is almost like a like a franchise leader of of trying to um, monetize um, Islamic products. And I know there you you try to handle this issue with a great deal of sensitivity, and it, um, there. Are a lot of terms we'll we'll talk about um, as we're moving more towards getting into the movement itself, but for for Gulen, 
Could you describe a bit about what his motivations were for starting this? What are some of maybe the, the popular misconceptions like I brought up? And then just for this coup in 2016, what is its importance? If it's often overstated by Western media, you can address that. But what are, what are, can you give us a bit of, of sort of grounding of who this man is and dismiss some of the misreporting or overemphasis that maybe Western media has attributed to this man? So as a sociologist, my interest from the inception of this was far less in the man, the Tugudan. There's plenty one can read about him. There's dozens and dozens of interviews that one can read with him. Um, he will answer questions that he's asked pretty much uniformly, regardless of who asked them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what was not known were, how were the institutions, the organizations, the people, the modes of recruitment, how financing happens. Um, the objective of institutions, the connectivity between people and ideas, um, the identity of different people, the participation of different people at different levels. This was, there was no social movement analysis of this organization, which my interest was always not the person, but the organization. So I, my work was very much on how this man became institutionalized as a movement, as they, as uh, outsiders referred to it and then was later adopted um, by those within the community themselves. Um, Misconceptions abound not only outside of Turkey, but inside Turkey before really 2010, uh, was as enigmatic inside Turkey as as he now is outside of Turkey. Um, There are clearly defined opinions that parallel one's political echo chamber. If you're a staunchly secular uh, minded Turk, you are suspect of all variations of, of um, public Muslim ide- identity that's outside a particular understanding about a Turkish secularist view about the role that Islam should play in one's life, which is a very sort of modernist, marrying and bearing view of Islam. Um, but other than that, Fethullah Gülen was also viewed as uh, there was always a, a, a follow-up when even the most staunchly critical, uh, and this is in 2002, 2003, 2004, would, would, would talk about Fethullah when I would ask about him, whether it was from a journalist or an uh, entertainer or uh, an artist of one form or another or uh, some other sort of high society secularist urbanite, there would be a critique followed by with some form of admiration for what his community was able to do in building schools, not only in Turkey, but around the world, that seemed by all accounts to be high performing and then having an effect of putting a positive stamp as far as Turkish branding around the world. Um, And so there was a a view of disdain, but then also a view of admiration for what the community was able to achieve by that time. Um, I uh, was not very impressed with reading Fethullah Gülen's writings myself. Um, not because of anything other than I didn't really understand um, as a non-Muslim, non-Turkish um, reader and observer, I couldn't understand what exactly was so 
revolutionary about this man's writings, which is how it was presented to me, both by his supporters and by his critics. Um, and it's so for that reason, I wanted to know what exactly uh, was so attractive. Um, and what I learned is that over time, when people came to this movement, uh, it happened through primarily, unless you already had a family member affiliated, it happened primarily at a particular moment in your life when you were studying for Turkey's centralized examination to get you into university. And this is just the nature of understanding uh, the developing world and how edu higher education works. There's far fewer seats than there are university aspiring students. Um, and so for that reason, a centralized examination system is used. This is not unique to Turkey at all. Um, that's tremendously rigorous, and that is the single and only uh, measure that gets one into a university classroom. And so in Turkey and elsewhere around the world, there is a market that has emerged of these exam prep courses. And in Turkey, the Gulen community over time had cornered the market in this industry of exam preparation. And I learned through dozens and dozens of interviews over the years that it is in, in preparation for this university exam is when somebody learned more about who Fatudu Gulen was and how his teachings could contribute to their own lives. And that coincidentally then came with um, a lot of uh, resources, a lot of access to a lot of benefits when studying for this exam. And then after that exam, if you did well and you went to university, there are other benefits that come with continual uh, admiration and participation within the activities of the Goodland community, subsidized rent, um, uh, resources to help you in your classes, and then after university, access to uh, the human resources of a 100-country-wide network of opportunities in various se sectors. And so what I then uh, came to realize uh, is that love and admiration for Fatuli Gulen did not happen until long after one was quite successful within the Gulen community. And in this, I viewed this as a rationalization of somebody's teachings towards very market-oriented objectives of individuals who were seeking opportunity in the midst of a declining welfare state and of an increasingly more globalized development model. And in a society where wealth and equality was growing, in a society where opportunity was dwindling, and the market was becoming a larger opportunity space for individual opportunity, the community provided access uh, if one wanted to participate. Um, and I found it quite fascinating, the diversity of young people in terms of their backgrounds, who over time uh, became quite influenced by the teachers of the Gulen in their 20s and in the 30s after having participated in the Gulen movement uh, for five to 10 years before that. Um, and I, I thought there was something to this. And then as this then was mobilized, this is something that you know, the Gulen community was clearly very aware of. And then they would market themselves as not necessarily only being uh, a religious organization guided by the enlightened teachings of a leader, but as an organization that had access and opportunity for people who uh, would like uh, to take advantage of it, provided then, if you wanted to do so, 
there was a certain set of responsibilities that was going to be asked of you. And the more you participate in the community, the more responsibilities you would then have to um, uh, engage with. And that um, I found to be quite fascinating. Um, in the context of me as an American non-Muslim at that time, when I really started to get very ingrained with um, the ins and outs of the community and started to really move through a number of institutions, interviewing a number of both folks at every level of that organization, from new recruit all the way up to organizational leader. Um, the, uh, the way in which my non-Muslimness, my Americanness, it was actually, it became very conscious to me that it was conscious, I was consciously used as evidence of access, of openness, of transparency. But then I also learned that that only that reached a limit and that if I wanted access or transparency beyond certain walls, there was going to be a lot more rapport that was going to be necessary. And uh, I would have to get a lot more sophisticated with my efforts to talk to the guy, the head of the bank, to talk to and the heads of the newspaper, heads of the TV stations, um, to gain access to institutions outside of Turkey. Um, but over time, I managed to do so. But again, I noticed you know, how uh, my non-Muslimness and non-Turkishness really did contribute to that access because I was viewed uh, in that regard as not potentially as threatening. As a non-Turk, I'm not politicized, or I wasn't at the time viewed, viewed as being already politicized towards um, Turkish political culture. And... Um, Outside of Turkey, much of what the Gillen community tries to do, specifically in Australia, South Africa, the United States, um, and Western Europe, is to market itself as a sort of, especially in the mid to early 2000s, as an alternative to Al-Qaeda, as an alternative to global jihadism, as a different type of global Islam. And so there were a number of, of practices, organizational practices that the healing community would engage in to market this identity of, them, of themselves and allowing an American Jewish academic entrance really did in many ways prove, um, or at least they often used it discursively, very conspicuously, as proof of their tolerance, of their desire to, for dialogue, uh, whether that was interfaith or intercultural. Um, and then when my work came out and I tried to carve a line of academic critique without political um, defamation, I then was as critiqued by members of the Gulen community as I was well regarded by members of the Gulen community because um, I was used by a variety of different people who had their own agendas and a variety of different actors would use my work to make their argument which then got uh, one leader of the community outside of Turkey referred to me over time as someone who emerged as what he called the good critic. And that is I was as critical of their organization and would uh, cite uh, ways in which discourse didn't measure up to practice, but in ways that I really tried to not call out as being something that necessitated en en enmity or 
something that viewed them as being threatening in one way or another. Instead, I viewed as uh, if you were threatened by them, it likely has to do with your own political identity already and your own interest already. And so, of course, their accumulation of influence and power will threaten these sectors and these sectors, why it would you know, make these other sectors elated in one way or another. Something I think would be good to highlight is, is this term market Islam that you use throughout the book. And you say something very interesting where you say that market Islam at least in Turkey, and maybe you can extend that outward uh, into the Muslim world, that it thrives in states weakened uh, by neoliberalism. Uh, I'm wondering if you could describe a bit about what market Islam is, and at least the system of the Gulan movement, if we can't speak with 100% uh, veracity towards the founder, what through this um, um, this uh, framework of market Islam is the Gulan movement trying to accomplish? So again, what I articulate as market Islam really is twofold in the book. Uh, what you're referring to is the ways in which I view the movement of Islam, that is the, through the institutions of the Gulen movement, the recruitment of people, the production of, of ideas and the dissemination of ideas happens through the marketplace. The Gulen community exists uh, today because of uh, a for-profit marketplace where Fatou Gulen became the product. Uh, he was institutionalized first uh, in the for-profit dissemination of his teachings and the creation of publishing houses to do so. This very uh, led eventually to various media outlets that soon moved into mass news collection and dissemination. Um, which then, over time, the media conglomerate that emerged, Feza Media, became one of the largest in Turkey, and its media products uh, among the most profitable um, through schools, first of which emerging in the context of a, of a coup in the early 1980s in Turkey, the Gulen schools that emerged were not, as we would understand them as Americans, religious schools. These were more STEM-oriented um, uh, K through 12 schools that uh, were viewed by the Gulen movement as training grounds for participants in a market economy, not necessarily as um, scholars of Islamic jurisprudence. So uh, when Fethi Gulen had argued in the late 1970s and 80s that followers of his teachings should build schools and invest in the market economy, not build mosques, uh, this was something that really took off. And the investment capital behind these schools that, again, started in the early 1980s and then blossomed very quickly throughout the country, the investment capital came from uh, exporters uh, who were accumulating their capital in accordance with Turkey's liberalization post-1983. Uh, government came to power there after the coup that initiated Turkey's uh, integration with the world economy 
and this led to a boom in light manufacturer exports. That light manufacturer export economy is the political base in American political parlance to, um, uh, again, both the AKP and the Gulen community, the sort of new Islamism. Um, and this was a variation of Muslim politics that uh, emerged from a mode of conservatism culturally, but of liberalism economically, whereby uh, businesses were growing very, very quickly, and industrial centers in the center of Turkey and Anatolia were growing very, very quickly in accordance with um, a dramatically expanding export economy. And then that accumulation was then uh, both reinvested in further production and export, but then also in investing in uh, the cultivation of a new political class in Turkey, of which both the Goodman community and the AKP are leaders in. So what I call market Islam is the way in which the pious identity of people was um, ex uh, was used and capitalized upon and through Turkey's first its export economy and then um, teaching to would-be workers in that export economy through these schools. That led to then the both the emergence of a niche Muslim economy of for-profit products engineered for pious Muslims whether that is Islamic fashion, uh, Islamic literature, uh, Islamic media, so on and so forth. But then it also emerged into uh, just high quality products in the general marketplace. So a number of the most recognizable brands, whether they're in food, fashion, or otherwise in Turkey and IT, were uh, the heads of these firms were uh, very proud and known uh, participants in either the Gulen community or um, the base behind the AK party or both. Um, and this then coupled with it how recruitment happened into this community, whereby recruitment happened among upwardly mobile teenagers who were encouraged to take advantage of a very rationalized model of developing um, STEM-based skills to be more competitive actors in a competitive Turkish marketplace that then over time how they became successful was going to be something that was going to be accredited to the piety of this movement and so over time it was in fact the piety of this movement or the profundity of Fethullah Gulen that was viewed as the reason why these businesses were successful and these people were becoming so very upwardly mobile. Um, and this is something I viewed as a very hyper-rationalized articulation of Islam, whereby uh, piety had a particular meaning and whereby Islamic teachings uh, were uh, not secondary, but certainly framed in line and explained or rationalized in accordance with market material success. One, you asked another reason why I wanted to contact you. My initial misconception of the Gulen movement 
was this sort of deep state, slow growth uh, process. Um, you do highlight one of the techniques that I have to credit to your book. I'm sure it's existed elsewhere, but I've never seen it uh, brought out in such a vivid way when describing strategies of organization building. You describe um, strategic ambiguity um, in terms of uh, one of the main uh, techniques, um, managerial techniques, strategic techniques uh, of the Gulen movement. I'm wondering if you could talk about strategic ambiguity in the context of how it was um, crucial to the growth of the Gulen movement internationally, but also how ultimately it hit uh, certain limits um, when when butting up against uh, uh, different cultural contexts. So strategic ambiguity is um, not my own concept. It's something uh, with, from the literature on the sociology of organizations. And in my awareness of literature and trying to understand at the time when I was researching this, how a uh, community or how an organization can uh, so very easily be so very ambiguous when asked a direct question. Uh, what started me down this path was that there was a regular refrain when one would ask in the 2004, 2005, 2006, this is not something that only that I know. I would talk to other people who um, were engaged with this movement, either directly or uh, peripherally. Um, but there was a, a phrase that was I would always hear, which is that there, when I would ask about, you know, I was talking to somebody at the paper or talking to a teacher at a school or talking to a business person, some exporting some widget or of some sort, producing some widget of some sort. And I would ask about... Um, the newspaper sitting in the office or ask about the advertisement for the bank inside the newspaper if I was at the newspaper. And uh, I was told there's no organic connection between these institutions. And that was a regular refrain. Regardless of where I was in the network, I would hear this. And so I very quickly realized this is a, this is a, this is a talking point that there's, it's not a coincidence that um, I'm hearing the exact same use of words across generations and across institutions and even throughout different countries. Um, and so then I realized then that this was something, the, the connectivity between institutions, between organizations, was something that in a Turkish context, I understood very well why um, it was not necessarily viewed as wise by actors within the Gulen community to recognize connectivity between institutions because of Turkey's 20th century history. Uh, with state society governance and the quasi-authoritarian authoritarian nature of the Turkish state as it concerned uh, communities of piety in that country. So I, um, I understood that um, people didn't want to explain exactly how connectivity happened, notwithstanding I needed to explain it myself because I saw connectivity. I saw people move from institution to institution uh, I saw, uh, again, uh, what in marketing you refer to as um, uh, self-peddling or self-serving, um, self-branding within the institution that you would have businesses that were serving each other in what looked like a, a niche economy. 
and then started research in the sociology of organizations and located the concept of, of strategic ambiguity and realized this really was something that was very useful to explain how connectivity can happen at the same time that um, you don't necessarily have a vertically integrated uh, system. So what I realized is that, you know, Fatou himself is a very ambiguous leader. He is credited as being the profound, um, seemingly prophetic-like, all-wise leader of an organization. When you read his hagiographies, he is articulated with perfection. He is always never um, changed in his thought. Um, and this is not unique to him. In the literature on charismatic authority, this is something that um, charismatic leaders are always viewed as 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 having qualities of just shy of infallibility that um, their thoughts has never been in contest. They've always been uh, crystallized in their view of the world and that success is always a sign of the profundity of their teachings. But then I also noticed that he, no member within the Gulen community and the Gulen movement uh, and Gulen himself never wanted to claim credit for leading anything and that he wasn't the leader of anything. And I viewed this as, as problematic, intellectually speaking. How could you be the leader of this movement and not leading anything and not have any direct say over anything that happens? And it was in that where I found out how leadership happens, how authority uh, is disseminated throughout the community, uh, which is another topic. But then, um, you know, realized that this leader was quite imperfect. Um, and if you read his early teachings in Turkish, there's a lot of whitewashed or cleansed out teachings as it relates to uh, views of women, views of other groups of people around the world, whether we're talking about Jews or Arabs, or um, he has a certain quality of um, Turkish exceptionalism about his views. Um, and if you read the English language translations, and as I'm told, I don't speak French um, or German, but similarly, if you read the German or French translations or Korean translations, a variety of other trans tra translations, much of this um, rhetoric is, is, is not is translated um, into other languages. And this is something that very recently, once it's been called out upon by his critics, uh, on the internet or other ways, um, participants have highlighted, well, he has since changed his views in this way and in that way, but for decades, uh, his views were, were uh, presented as uh, static and profound unto themselves. Um, his biography was um, in many ways um, paralleled with other profound and charismatic figures as they're written about throughout Islamic history. There's a common use. Um, uh, there's a, something that's revered among Muslims, uh, how long it takes you and at what age you memorize the Quran. And there's many Muslim leaders throughout history that in their early in their biography, it'll be highlighted how young and how quickly they memorized the Quran. And this is one of the first things you read about Fatou Gulen, that he did so in grade school and that he was leading prayers um, very early in his life. Um, Anyway, this is something that I began, you know, realized it started with him. I realized the information that's presented about him is tremendously contradictory depending on the source. 
And if you start to tease that out, you can see that this person is a fantastically imperfect character that like any human, um, he has uh, a history of, of imperfections, of inconsistencies throughout his life, but how he is presented by his handlers is uh, quite the opposite. Well, then I viewed this extended throughout every institution in the organization, that schools are ubiquitously presented as being of high quality, and of the ones that are not of high quality that close because of some form of organizational or scholastic, um, whether it's impropriety or non-performance, depending on the case, these are just not discussed whatsoever. Um, and so long story short, I viewed that there were primarily four different ways in which um, the organization, the practices of an individual organization or relationships between organizations, uh, the identity of the community and of the man himself, that there was a very strategic emphasis on um, what I called ambiguity for the purposes of saying it's not that people don't want to talk about it, it's that when a direct question is asked, there is a very conspicuous um, way to not address that question or to address it in a very particular way depending on who's doing the asking. Are you an academic? Are you a journalist? Are you a politician? Are you a critic? Are you just an interested person? Um, and you would get a different answer to the same question depending on who you are from the exact same person. And after further research, I realized this is all very calculated and very um, particular because of an awareness of different local contexts as well as sectoral contexts. So you're talking about a paper, you're talking about a business, whereby it is very conscious on the part of the community, this is all pre-2016, that identity or affiliation with the Gulen community, that an identity of affiliation with the community, uh, with the Gulen community may be the most important thing towards an organization's success for another organization, announced affiliation may be the most important thing to that organization's failure. Um, the example of that will be charter schools in the United States, where the community is the largest operator of any, uh, relative to any other charter operator in the United States, but they do so through a series of charter management organizations rather than one. Um, and they can honestly articulate organizational autonomy because these are organizationally separate entities and so affiliation between them happens through social net networks and under the table financial net networks not through organizational um, uh, structuring in terms of say the model of a charge man management organization that has a hundred schools in 20 states versus the Guinea community which has 170 schools but it's organized by dozens of charter management organizations that all have uh, organizational autonomy unto themselves. And so for this reason, one can look at somebody who's inquiring about it with a straight face and say there's no connection between these institutions because in one way, there isn't. Uh, the problem is that in many other ways there are. And that's, um, again, where strategic ambiguity really is useful. Um, in that it's not accurate, in my opinion, that the Gulen community openly lies or members openly lie 
because from a certain perspective, what they're saying often when they're talking about connectivity is in fact true. It's just uh, ambiguous and intentionally so. Now a critic would call that disingenuous and an organizational analyst would call it um, uh, effective for these reasons. <laughs> Um, and uh, cross-cultural context like the United States, it has been less effective. Well, that's politically it's been less effective, but then again, organizationally, it hasn't stopped their growth. So there is an argument to be made uh, whereby you can have the emergence of critique uh, here around their activities in charter uh, school education. At the same time, um, they've only expanded their charter school operations um, over time, and that doesn't see any um, any sign of waning, um, nationally speaking, however much it may run into more issues in certain states, that has far more to do with that state's relationship with the school choice movement in general than it does with the Gulen community. What led to the AKP and the Gulen movement suddenly splitting, and post-2016, what's become of Islam in Turkey? Is it still this form of market Islam we've been discussing uh, so far? Well, and again, I would say first on that, um, the Gulen community's brand of Islam, I call market Islam. Islam in Turkey is quite diverse. There's uh, a state, state, the largest bureaucracy of, of Turkey is the presidency of religious affairs, the DNAT outside of the military, that is. And this is something that started with the formation of Turkey and its uh, state bureaucracy of religious affairs modeled after France. Um, and so there is an official state Islam in Turkey. Any um, legalized uh, religious teacher or prayer leader is technically an employee of the Turkish state. This included Fethullah Gulen in the 1970s, much of his career in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and on top of that, then, there's also an overlapping tradition of various forms of um, what Americans know as Sufism or Sufis in Turkey, of which there are four or five um, different overlapping what in Turkish are called tarikatlar, uh, which are uh, religious communities, religious orders, Sufi brotherhoods. Um, and so when we're talking, when I'm talking about market Islam, really specifically talking about the Gulen's, Gulen community's variation of Islamic political identity or Muslim political identity better uh, in the Turkish context and how then it, it emerged, how it did, where it did, and how it took advantage of, of opportunity spaces outside of Turkey to maximize its, its interests inside Turkey. Um, the AKP is, is a very different um, starting, you know, it's, it's a much older, I should say it's a much more... Um, not older, but um, conspicuously politicized religious community. It's connected to something called the Milli Garouche movement, the National Outlook movement, which is more the traditional 20th century Turkish Islamist movement, um, mobilized in partisan politics, you know, one party after another starting in 1970. And a fellow named Nejmetin Erbakan was its leader until uh, this was the party that was removed in 1997 from power and what Turks call this postmodern coup. Erdogan and leaders of the AKP were part of this sort of traditional political Islamic movement in their youth. Um, and the AKP is very much a continuation of that. I would just say the AKP was very much influenced by the successes of the Gulen community's variation of what I call market Islam, uh, 
and certainly did influence the um, reform of Turkish Islamism under the AKP in the 2000s, which facilitated that party's rise to power. And that's dead. There's still many, many other groups, um, uh, identity groups, and whether they're politically active or not in Turkey. And so I just want to make sure that we don't uniformly talk about all Islam in Turkey um, as being represented by either the AKP or the Gulen community. That wouldn't be accurate at all. That said, um, the Gulen community, Fethullah Gulen himself, had marketed and branded the Gulen community throughout um, its existence as being apolitical. Fethullah Gulen articulated as having what he called an uh, equidistance to all political parties in Turkey. And so throughout the 1990s, when the Gulen community um, was said to, quote, come out of its shell, Fethullah Gulen started to show up on TV a lot. He started to visit with several party leaders, uh, right, left, and center, to highlight the um, universalism of that community's objective as it concerned what was articulated as all of Turkey. Um, in this way, for an American audience, there are certainly overlaps and comparisons to Billy Graham and to the moral majority of the United States. Billy Graham made an effort to do the same thing, to be equidistant to both political parties here, to become a spiritual advisor to whoever was president, which he managed to do. Um, and the moral majority up until really Bush 43 uh, had always mobilized itself as being interested in a, a, a moral reform of U.S. society, but certainly didn't want to align itself with one party or another until it did so with the Republican Party with uh, Bush 43. So there's a certainly overlap to that end, whereby the Gulen community did not publicly um, or privately align itself with any political party. There was certainly some political diversity uh, within the community, all on the center right, no doubt, but certainly some diversity uh, until the coming of the AK party. And the coming of the AK party, again, was spun by the Gulen community's um, leaders through public discourse. This is gonna happen primarily through uh, its media outlets, uh, its newspapers, television, et cetera. Um, its opinion writers, as well as a number of authors who became quite noteworthy and influential themselves, they would spin the, the AK party as that, again, as I mentioned earlier, as a force of democratization and as a force for reforming Turkey's um, crippling relationship with military, what it was called military tutelage or military oversight over elected governance. Um, and so in this regard, uh, there was an alliance that had emerged uh, whereby they did in many ways uh, uh, partner in the dismantling, in lack of a better word, of the 20th century Kemalist state. And that first and foremost um, was in the Turkish military and then sec secondarily in the judiciary. And it was during this time, AK Party comes to power in 2002. So from 2002 until about 2010, early 2011, um, the Gulen community took advantage of overlaps and favors with the AK party to really uh, populate itself within strategic sectors of the Turkish state. 
uh, specifically the Turkish military, Turkish judiciary, as well as the Istanbul police forces and a number of other city police forces, as well as in the um, Higher Education Council. And in 2007, a January, early 2007, a series of events happened. The assassination of an Armenian journalist in the streets of Istanbul uh, in broad daylight, shortly after 5 p.m. on a weekday. Then later with a weapons cache with military weapons with serial numbers uh, scratched off found in a neighborhood in Istanbul. These two events started um, an investigation led by the Turkish judiciary, which later was recognized as being led by so-called Gülenis, into what at the time was referred to as the Turkish deep state. Now the deep state conspiracy in Turkey is a very old conspiracy, long predating the American use of the term. These days, uh, there's also a long-standing theory of the deep state conspiracy of the deep state in Egypt. Um, uh, notwithstanding the, the, the notion of the Derin Devlet, the deep state, it's very old in Turkey. And the investigations begun in 2007 that continued for the next five years uh, were articulated in mass throughout all of Turkish media with very little skepticism, especially early on, into the inner workings of the Turkish deep state, which was viewed as being a shadow network of elites, cross sectors, whether they were in big capital, big, big media, partisan politics, or various institutions of state as representing a network of shadow state actors who were um, working behind the scenes to maximize the interests of the deep state, regardless of whatever elected government might be in power. And so there were long conspiracy theories that any time a journalist was assassinated in broad daylight or some public disturbance happens uh, that was blamed on some lowly kid Islamist, that this, these were the actions of the deep state trying to cause social unrest to, towards some uh, end objective. So the investigations that were later dubbed investigations into uh, a network calling itself, or what was branded as Ergenikon, which is a, uh, uh, an image from Turkish folklore of a fictional valley, and this was Ergenikon was what was alleged this deep state network called itself. This led to a series of other uh, allegations to do other networks of the deep state that one called Balyo's uh, sledge, Sledgehammer was uh, claimed to be a network of military men who were intent to overthrow the AK party government uh, by creating social unrest uh, in Istanbul to force a no-confidence collapse of that government. Um, anyway, long story short, these investigations went on for five years and led by the Gulen community, allegedly within the judiciary, and supported very much by the AK Party because of the objective to remove these actors within uh, various sectors of the Turkish elite who were known to be very antithetical to um, AK Party objectives. And it was only once this investigation came to a close uh, whereby, in lack of a better way, mutual enemies were removed uh, that the AK Party and the Gulen movement turned on themselves. And this started through a series of small public displays of disagreement. Among the first, uh, in 2010, there was a Turkish-led flotilla brigade called the Mavi Marmara. Um, that attempted to uh, crash the blockade, Israel's blockade on the Gaza Strip. 
that was then um, uh, seized upon by uh, uh, Israeli forces and a number of people were killed. Um, this was, uh, uh, this event was uh, publicly lambasted by Erdogan and led to the beginning of what continues to be um, uh, cooler relations between Israel and Erdogan's Turkey. Uh, well, Fatou de Glen had a different um, view of that event publicly, disagreed with Erdogan's more hawkish stance towards Israel pub publicly about that event, and that uh, was the first of what became several public displays of disagreement. The straw that broke the camel, which I do mention in the book, and I highlight at the end of the book, uh, you know, published in 2013, that this marriage of convenience and of worldviews uh, is showing signs of fissure. In February of 2012, um, there was an ongoing AKP-led effort of what they called a uh, Kurdish opening or democracy initiative toward um, coming to some sort of final uh, final status on uh, the Kurdish issue in Turkey. And there were efforts by the AKP to um, mobilize secret talks with members, leaders of the PKK. Well, this um, is... Uh, Illegal in that because the PKK is a, is a legalized as a is branded by the Turkish state as a terrorist organization There can be no direct talks with them and That said there were allegedly secret channels to cultivate AKP led talks with the PKK well the allegedly Glenis led judiciary Opened up an investigation into that and subpoenaed the head of the Turkish intelligence a confidant time the Turkish parliament then rushed through a bill that said that no active intelligence agents can be subpoenaed um, for questioning. That then led to the nullification of the subpoena. But as far as the AKP was concerned, this was a direct attack by the Yulang movement on the authority of the AKP government. And it was from then on that Erdogan started to publicly uh, be more critical of Fatou de Gulen of his living in the United States. He started to publicly ask him to come home, uh, that he was welcome to come home, that charges against him that had previously been filed in absentee were dropped, that he's welcome to come home, that he should come home. Um, and then Gezi Park happened, where then there was an effort on the part of uh, the AKP to uh, create a very loosely coordinated theory that somehow the Gulen movement was behind the mobilization of these protests in August of 23rd, excuse me, summer of 2013. Um, and then after that, in late 2013, early 2014, there was a leaking of a story uh, that the AKP was going to go through with a long-planned effort to reform the Turkish education system and reform the centralized examination system um, that would, long story short, really hurt and go after the Gulen movement's um, market dominance in the exam preparatory economy of Turkey, itself being... Uh, uh, several hundred million dollar economy. Um, 
And this is something that uh, was leaked to the Gula Movement's newspaper, Zaman, and was published in November of 2013, that this effort to reform the education system and that would effectively close these schools uh, and reform the centralized examination system accordingly um, was published in November. And then in December, uh, it was uh, published on various social media sites, alleged recordings of uh, members of the AKP, as well as allegedly uh, Erdogan himself, engaged in various graft and bribery schemes. Um, and then there were uh, um, investigations that were opened into very high-level AKP officials, including Erdogan's son, the law, uh, into various bribery and graft schemes. In January of 2014, then, is when uh, the first use of the term by Erdogan of a parallel state uh, targeted, uh, directed against the Gulen community. And then uh, later that year, the first use of FETO, or the Fetullah terrorist organization. So it's really since January of 2014 that total enmity was established between these two groups. And between 14 and 16, uh, the AKP went after the Gillian community's holdings, uh, and taking over a number of their privately held firms and, uh, that is effectively nationalizing them and assigning trustees to their um, governing regimes, taking over the bank, taking over the media firm, um, seizing and closing their largest um, uh, multi-sector conglomerate, um, and really sending the community into a two-year state of exile. So the, um, the theory is, is that in August of 2016, there was a coming, there's a regular National Security Council meeting in every August where there are uh, new appointments at every rank of the Turkish Armed Forces and at that coming August 2016 meeting, there was a very widely viewed rumor that there was going to be a purge of uh, Gulen uh, sympathize, sympathetic um, uh, admirals and generals off of the Security Council and off of other um, uh, uh, areas of, of influence in the Turkish Armed Forces. And so... This is then why July was then, um, this is at least given by the AKP as the motive. Um, this is then why July was viewed as sort of a last ditch effort to save the Gulen community's position. Now, the reality is, is that uh, there is um, clearly a difficult burden of proof, despite a you know, mountain of circumstantial efforts to signify some sort of culpability of Gulen movement actors in the events of July 2016. There is also, um, it's very difficult to, and again, this has to do uh, a lot with the strategic ambiguity in terms of the organizational nature of the community itself. It is nearly impossible to paint a clear line of culpability to Fatuli Gulen himself, let alone to a number of leaders. It cannot meet the extradition requirements in terms of the burden of proof as it concerns uh, Turkey's request to extradite Gulen from the United States. Um, and so this has uh, driven Turkey crazy as far as they're concerned. 
And as far as the U.S. is concerned, um, you know, the extradition treaty is quite clear that the burden of proof is on the Turkish state to clearly indicate um, culpability uh, in order to strip Fatou de Gulen of his right of permanent residency, which he does have since November 2008. Um, so, yeah, this is by no means longstanding en enmity. And if there is a Gulenist, quote unquote, deep state or parallel state, the AKP is as culpable as any other actor in that being the case. The uh, I guess the the sort of the last question I have um, uh, again the 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 interest I had in studying the Gulen movement through your work was the idea that uh, for leftist organizations um, similar a bit to the Muslim Brotherhood, where I was also very interested in their policies and and governmentality and organizational structure, and then at least the digging that I had done in. Egypt, that they were not, um, that they, they were interesting, but the, they were not sort of models, I think, that could be copied by the left. Um, and when I was studying the Gulen movement, I was very interested. It was like, okay, well, did this guy really try to build a parallel deep state? And if so, could the left do that? Because every time the left goes against the state, they get crushed. Um, because cops have guns and leftists have signs, <laughs> protest signs, and guns like uh, kill you. And so I was, I was wondering if the Gulen movement like could offer like sort of a deep state plan for the left, where you spend twenty years, thirty years, fifty years. Oh, please. Uh. In my opinion, the Gulen communities overstep, overreach, existential overreach, was its drinking of state power from 2007 on. Its influence and success was not realized through infiltrating the arteries of the system, to quote the infamous uh, clip from Fethuli Gulen's um, Sokbet that you can watch online. Um, instead, it's it the, the the sort of how it became successful, how it became influential, how it established itself um, to be able to claim millions of followers and um, wield tremendous influence was through the market. It took advantage of market opportunities and in every which way rationalized itself toward profit. Now, that had dastardly consequences on its ideology because what, you know, quoting Max Weber, the, the weight of material interests uh, eventually crushed its, its overall objectives. But notwithstanding what attracted uh, skeptics, non-Muslims, to the Gulen community was again, what I call its brand of market Islam, now where it then uh, repoliticized itself or moved its politics outside of influence and towards state power, that's when it opened itself up, in my opinion, to all of those critics who had long feared this movement can now point to it and say, that, look, we, we were right the whole time. Now, there were always purges throughout 20th century history 
of various institutions of the Turkish state by one government or another of various so-called Islamists or leftists. And Gulen community actors were often, among many other groups, purged in regular purgings throughout you know, the Turkish military or Turkish police forces. Um, but again, it didn't become the Gulen movement because of infiltrating the Turkish state. The Gulen movement became the Gulen movement because of uh, opportunities in the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of, of products. I uh, would imagine that any leftist organization that tried to do that same thing would very quickly lose um, its identity as a leftist organization, and it would be just as smitten by material success as the human community became and viewed its material success as somehow evident of its ideological profundity. And that, again, was all contradicted dramatically when it, when it uh, allegedly uh, moved uh, toward absolute power. Um, and again, this is something that, uh, you know, um, and you mentioned in the, in the questions you had to me in terms of Mona Atia's work, I view whether you're talking about a Muslim context, Christian context, or any other faith-based context, when a faith-based organization mobilizes uh, its objectives in the marketplace so that its objectives become profit, then uh, profit eventually will overtake any other objective. And at, that certainly became the case for Fatuli Gulen. Success was measured in subscription numbers in languages translated, his works were translated into, in the size of the schools, the amount of the schools, the success of the schools, uh, the ability of students at the schools to win awards. Uh, this is how success was measured. And this is, um, you know, very much antithetical to uh, what a traditional faith-based movement would say success is measured in, in um, some sort of cultivation of piety, right? And you had a very, um, uh, you certainly can talk to thousands and thousands of members of the Gulen community who are not exactly the most pious people in the world. Uh, and this, in my book, I talk about then where you, know, you have this graduated network of affiliation that you only, the total believer is actually a very small group of people. Um, and so in this regard, in terms of organizational strategies, I don't see uh, the use of the term movement, I would use in quotes, you mentioned that earlier, this is not really a social movement in terms of contentious politics in the same way that it is a collective mobilization towards power, which it absolutely I view as such. Now, power was accumulated through influence in the market, and then that market influence could be uh, curtailed towards influence in the political space. Um, and for a time, that worked very well when the Gulen community wasn't trying to directly be a uh, you know the political power. It in every which way. Uh, debilitated itself when it tried to do that. And what I call its apolitical politics are where it was successful. When it tried to actually get political is where it failed. Uh, and this got to the case where in the third term of the AKP, you actually had dozens and dozens and dozens of Gulenists actually run as AKP de deputies uh, and actually really did try to quote-unquote, infiltrate the party, if you will, which again overlaps with when 
um, uh, this split happened between these two. And again, so I, you know, I think you know, opposite your question, it's actually when it got more opportunistic politically is when it actually began its rather rapid descent. Oh, I don't think anyone has a really good idea. I was interested in, um, I'm, I'm interested in the Zapatistas and Holloway and uh, Rojavia and Graeber and those scholars because I look at um, uh, electoralism as a dead end for a variety of reasons. Um, and so, but being a novice uh, in Mona Atia's work and your work and coming into it, when you read about the Brotherhood, you know, spending 20, 30 years underground or when uh, Gulan was, is framed for you as an American in these sensationalized ways of building this vast informal network of power, you, you, and um, I believe Kevin Phillips has written similarly about Christian supremacists um, doing that in the United States. Um, and with uh, Mike Pence being a very noted follower of, it seems like extremely, right-wing variations of Christianity. So, I mean, if you can't beat neoliberalism, I I suppose my thinking was, well, maybe you can can inject faith into its most powerful practitioners and and destroy the whole thing that way. Um, But the Muslim Brotherhood, at least from my understanding through Moniatia's work and and, um, a few other scholars... Uh, continued neoliberal policies. Your work disabused me of the Gulen movement having any uh, preference for uh, attacking neoliberalism. Instead, they seem to really profit, as you as you mentioned, from a weak state. And uh, I have no idea what to do, but I'm going to keep talking to scholars, both well known and uh, who should be well known, to try to figure out what the hell to do. Um, with the time we have left. <laughs> um, well, well, Dr. Hendrick, it was a pleasure talking to you. Is there anything that if we do introduce this to a, a wider audience that you um, would like for people if they are curious about your work or anything, if you feel there are Turkish um, uh, scholars or, or books that would be helpful for individuals interested in our chat today? Is there anything that you'd like to highlight just to, to conclude? You know, with an American audience, uh, it's you know when it comes to Turkey, there is a I would say this: there's a there's a branding of Turkey as somehow bridging East and West, uh, somehow being this bridge between Islam and and the West, and that is overly simplistic and deeply problematic metaphor to use, um, and a complete misrepresentation of how the world system organized itself. But it is because of that, an organization like Fatsuli Glenn is able to present itself uh, to an American or a European or an Australian academic uh, the way it does, because we view the world as these, um, you know, civilizationally organized Islam in the West instead of viewing the whole world as um, being socially constructed of one, as, as one space. And um, when we view somehow the East is different and that Turkey somehow of a bridge, this reaffirms, again, what you had referenced earlier in our talk, a very Orientalist narrative of, of 
uh, otherizing. And then that allows, for instance, if I view somehow this dichotomy between the West and Islam, then when I see something like the Tubi Gulen, I can see, oh, look, there's, there's a palpable, there's a nice, there's a peaceful, there's a liberal, there's a moderate Islam. And I would just encourage anyone to know that Islam is neither moderate nor radical nor liberal. It can't be anything. Islam is Islam. It's not an agent. Muslims are doers. Islam doesn't do anything. And a person can be moderate, a person can be radical, and a person can be righty or lefty. But Islam can be none of the above. Islam can't be radical, and it can't be peaceful. But people can be. And I guess I would encourage anyone when they're looking at Turkey or any other part of the world to imagine that the whole world is just as complicated and contradictory as we all are. Thank you.